0: It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Monday, July 24th, 2023. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. The wheels of a large tour bus caught fire Friday in downtown Sitka. Just after noon, the Sitka Fire Department responded to a 911 call from Harrigan Centennial Hall, reporting that the back tires of a tour bus parked in front of the city's tourist hub were on fire. According to a fire department spokesperson, the caller reported seeing flames emanating from the area. A team of six firefighters responded and found the wheels smoking, and with a little water they quickly extinguished the smolder. No one was injured in the incident. The bus was taken out of service, and an investigation is ongoing. Fire officials suspect the vehicle's brakes had seized and overheated. A handful of tour bus companies bring cruise passengers from the privately owned cruise dock to downtown, around six miles one way, multiple times a day. Friday, however, was a particularly light day for cruise traffic. Two ships were in town, the Seven Seas Explorer with a capacity of 750 passengers, and the Norwegian Spirit with just over 2,000. An insect infestation responsible for defoliating thousands of acres of the Tongass National Forest is abating. Scientists with the Forest Service believe that the black-headed budworm, whose numbers surged over the past three years, is now in decline. And while it's not clear how much lasting damage was done by the insect, there's a good chance that some parts of the forest may emerge from the infestation better off. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports.
1: I caught up with Gordy Williams by cell phone while he was riding the state ferry La from his home on Killisnew Island in Angoon to Juneau in mid-July. It was a perfect day for a cruise up the Inside Passage and a perfect day to see the widespread damage caused by the black-headed budworm.
2: You know, I'm looking at Chichikov and but There are some pretty big impacts on the east side of these islands.
1: Those impacts are acre upon acre of defoliated hemlock trees, Wide swaths of brown striping the otherwise endless green of southeast Alaska. The trees needles consumed by tiny voracious caterpillars who are fueling their eventual transformation into the budworm moth. Williams worked for years in the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. He understands that budworm and its partner in crime, the hemlock sawfly, have a role in the forest, but this latest event he considers extreme. The Forest Service estimates 685,000 acres were defoliated by insects in the last three years.
2: It's a natural cycle, but when it does get ramped up like this, it does have a pretty significant effect on the ecosystem. So what our curiosity is at this point and our concern is what are the impacts of this radically pinned out forest canopy in so many areas? You know, that's what provides winter cover for deer and other animals and it going to impact stream temperatures and that kind of thing?"
1: This part of Chatham Strait is notorious for winter storms, huge sou'easters that blow right up the channel between Admiralty and Baranoff Islands, and can make this ordinarily pleasant ferry ride a bit of a stomach-churner. Hemlock sawfly stressed these trees in 2018 and 2019. The black-headed budworm infestation followed in 2020. Forest Service entomologist Liz Graham described it as a one-two punch to the forest, putting it on the ropes. The weather may have finished the job.
3: It definitely seems to be on some more extreme sites too, the ones that are really heavily exposed. Um, and so I do think that it's a little bit more like compounding impacts where there was heavy defoliation and then maybe on top of that, a big windstorm or ice storm, and that really kind of stripped the, the last of it. And so I do think that that's why we have seen some of those areas with really more dense mortality, that it's uh, there's been more than one event there.
1: Graham said that depending on the area, up to half of the hemlock trees may have died. Although this sounds like a high toll, Graham's colleague, silviculturist Molly Simonson, says on a forest-wide scale, the damage is limited. Most areas are unaffected, and some forest die-off is not necessarily a bad thing.
3: You know, trees do die, whether it's whether it's um, clusters of them, you know, during a particular event, or whether it's just individually over the course of that forest development. But um, you know, it contributes to nutrient cycling within the ecosystem, and there's always going to be other trees in the understory waiting to take over that space. There's regeneration underneath those dominant trees that are just waiting to take over, and they'll capitalize on that.
1: The last major black-headed budworm infestation in the Tongass was in the 1950s, and good data are hard to come by. Liz Graham says tree ring studies could help her identify the timing of the budworm cycle, but humans are throwing new variables in the mix. Climate change, or specifically the number of frost-free days, could play a role in outbreaks, but warmer weather can also disadvantage budworms.
3: The budworm populations actually extend all throughout the Pacific Northwest. And so uh, the outbreaks that we've been experiencing here have really just been happening in southeast Alaska and haven't extended to B.C. And so some of the research we've been looking at, it might be actually too warm down there. So it could be that we're in this perfect little climate window right now for, for budworm outbreaks.
1: Although the outbreak in southeast Alaska is subsiding, there are some areas where budworms are peaking, notably Juneau and Haines. Picture a slow moving budworm tsunami that began on Prince of Wales Island and traveled north. Defoliation is not certain death, however. Trees that were stripped near Gordie Williams' home on Killisnew Island are sending out new buds this year, as are many along the route of the Lakanti as it steams up Chatham Strait.
2: We'll just have to see how many of those trees can come back and how long it takes.
1: Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey.
0: For decades, Petersburg's aptly named Tent City provided shelter for a rotating cast of transient workers and adventurers. Some of them stayed in Petersburg and made it their permanent home. A new exhibit at the Claussen Memorial Museum looks at the ways that the campground impacted both the economy and the character of the town. KFSK's Hannah Flohr has the story.
4: Sled dog Louie comes through the gate, ready to race around looping gravel trails. Nearby, another dog, Ozzie, nuzzles skunk cabbage. We're more than a mile and a half from downtown Petersburg, at a fenced dog park run by Petersburg's Humane Association.
2: Ozzie!
4: Come on! But this place wasn't always a dog park. In the 80s and 90s, it was a campground known as Tent City. The economy of Petersburg has long relied on fish. But before fish processing plants had bunkhouses for their employees, cannery workers had a tough time finding lodging during the fishing season. In 1980, the city of Petersburg decided to address the housing problem by building 26 tent platforms, restrooms, and a cooking pavilion on a chunk of land between Sandy Beach and the airport. A month after the campground opened in the summer of 1981, it was full. Heidi Lee lived in a school bus just down the hill from Tent City. So many people came here from all over the world and had a big experience. The museum exhibit takes visitors on a tour through the 20-plus years of Tent City's existence. A blue tarp hangs from the ceiling, mimicking the shelters built on each tent platform. There are photos of campers, of course, but also the camp cat, named the Mayor of Tent City. There's a bunch of silverware found under tent platforms when the campground was dismantled. Another common find earplugs. Don Perry managed the campground in the late 90s.
2: There's somebody asleep, depending upon what the shift they're on, every minute of the day. There's people in there sleeping, because some work days, some work nights.
4: The campground had its own culture, one that was a little more wild and woolly than that of Petersburg. Don Perry says that although not everyone at Tent City was wonderful, it was filled with all kinds. He loved the job of managing the campground. It
2: was fun. And it's the people that made it fun. wasn't me. <laughs> it just wasn't me, but it, they made it fun.
4: He tells a story about a man from New York who was a little out of his element. He came to Petersburg to work for PFI. The processing plant had donated a sleeping bag for him to use at the campground. And he says, what do I do with this?
2: He said, do I lay on top of it? Do I lay under it? I says, well, you just unzip it and you crawl in it. And I unzipped it for him. He crawled in. And it was amazing how many people out there that had never slept in a sleeping bag.
4: The constant rain made tent city life soggy. Hours at the cannery were long. Those unwilling to hitchhike or pay cab fare into town often had to walk or bike to and from work in bad weather. In the late 90s, processing plants started to build bunkhouses for their employees. By the early 2000s, Tent City was no longer financially viable. And in 2003, the Petersburg City Council voted unanimously to close the campground. After lying vacant for nearly a decade, the borough voted to give the Petersburg Humane Association permission to use the land. Heidi Lee loves that the museum has an exhibit focusing on the campground. It was our our kind of more recent history of people moving to town and discovering this place and realizing, you know, what a gem it is. It's fun to see people fall in love with this place because it gives us new appreciation for it, you know. Outgoing museum director Cindy Lagadakis says the exhibit has helped her understand just how much Tent City was a part of life in Petersburg during the 80s and 90s. Everybody who comes in the door has a story of their own to tell, which is really kind of fun. <laughs> Some aspect of it that they know about or they experienced. And that's, that's kind of what a museum is about. You know, it's to, to share information, to share history, to make you think, to kind of have something that you can relate to. Items continue to be added to the exhibit, which will be up through the end of summer. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has
0: been Raven News.
4: This is more.